we are reading the book Whom God Has Joined by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International. And we are on Chapter 6, Speech Seasoned with Salt. Bell, it's come. We are appointed to move west and take over the station of Tali, which has been without missionaries for a year now. Whoopee! John waved the letter from headquarters at me with jubilation. I ran to him and we hugged each other with a joyous exuberance and then stopped to join in a prayer of thanksgiving to God. The Lesu tribes of J.O. Fraser's discovery were in the western Yunnan, where Tali was located. There's another letter, John continued. Mr. Fraser wishes us to come up to Kuming in May. He will be there at that time and would like to see us before we go west. Also, Jack Graham and Ella are being married on May 15th, and Mr. Fraser knows that they want us as best man and matron of honor. So it's all working out. Then, too, Bud F. is having to come to Kuming for new glasses. Bell, you will get to meet Bud at last. Bud had been John's special friend and confidant at Chinese language school in 1926 to 28. During the term, one of their fellow students, William Potts, had suddenly died. God had used his death to solemnize and, and challenge that group of new workers. Bud and John had rededicated themselves to God, and the Lord had used them to challenge others. John was especially blessed by the truth of Christ living in the believer. It has transformed his life. Bud had been sent to a different province, so he and I had never met. He was a slim, good-looking, and had dimples. Not what I would conjure up as a male saint. But as soon as you started to talk to him, you forgot everything but the Lord. He lived for no one else and nothing else. In his presence, my Irish enthusiasm soon quieted down, and a great wistfulness for God came to me. That night, John was asked to preach in the street chapel. But as I was weary, I went to bed instead. The evening streets brought mostly men in the chapel anyway. But before I was asleep, John burst into our room. Bell, say, Bud wants me to pray all night with him in the chapel. Do you mind, dear, when it's for this purpose? I answered slowly. No, I don't mind, but I'd like to know when. Why wouldn't an hour of prayer be enough? Well, said hubby, I guess I'll have to tell you. They asked Bud and me to preach in the street chapel, and as Bud went first, I couldn't help but compare his Chinese with mine. We came to China together, you know, and he speaks the language okay, but I couldn't help but know that my language was better. No one responded to the gospel invitation, and the meeting finally closed. As Bud approached me, I guess I rather expected to have him compliment me on the progress I had made since he last heard me. Here, Hubby stopped and hung his head. I'm very proud of his fluent Chinese and added, Well? Well, Bud said to me, John, I was disappointed tonight. You have made great progress with the language, of course. But when at last I heard you speak, I used to see Christ. Tonight I could not get by John Kuhn and his fine command of the language. No one was one to Christ tonight, was there? Do you suppose you've lost something? Would you like to pray with me all night if need be, just you and me? Besides, I felt I needed. In the province I was sent, the churches were so cold. There had been some argument among the senior missionaries as to which Chinese term should be used for God in preaching and translation. Oh, is Satan going to kill our usefulness just by sidetracking us? I feel I need to pray, but I'd like to have you pray with me, as we used to do in Shanghai. I told him I wanted to ask you first, but I was sure you wouldn't hinder. I most certainly won't, I replied, deeply stirred, and tell him I'll be praying here, too. It took courage to speak to you straight like that. 
when he was the poorer speaker of the two. Yes, my husband said humbly, but God comes first with Bud, you know, and I want that he should be with us too. I needed this correction badly. Bless you, dear, I said. Go, and the Lord be with you. That all-night prayer meeting was the beginning of blessing among us all. The work in Yunnan was not as dead as Bud's province, but we had differences between the senior missionaries too, and our superintendent felt we all needed a fresh touch from the Lord. So we called as many together as could come and proclaimed a cessation of all but most necessary work that the rest of the time might be spent in prayer and meeting together. The ten days that followed we never forgot. Truly the Lord met us. The Holy Spirit convicted first one and then another. With tears we confessed critical thoughts or wrong actions to one another. There was a putting away of hindering things with a real melting together. This was the first time in my life that behind-the-back criticism of another Christian was shown to me to be sin, and the most deadly sin that paralyzes the spirit and quenches him when we're longing to pour out blessing. I wish that I could say I was never again guilty of this, but that would be not true. It did mean, however, that from that day I recognized it as wrong and something that I must treat as sin. Our superintendent, Mr. J. O. Frazier, was wonderful in this regard. In his speech, seasoned with salt, he was an example to us all. He was also courageous enough to refuse to listen to the criticism of another when it was made to him. Now we wonder if Bud had been afraid to say to John what he knew in his heart needed to be said, what would have been the end? We do not like to think of it. After the conference, you can imagine our anticipation as John and I started West for Tolly, an old station at the moment without missionaries. We were to continue Chinese language studies there, but also to meet young missionaries whom the mission was expecting. There had been an appeal for 200 new workers in two years. Mr. Fraser thought it was extremely important who the young missionaries spent their first years with, and we were made to fill our responsibility. John was also to travel and explore the areas around Tali. Those days there were no Burma Road. We had to travel stage by stage, either by walking or riding on a horse or in a, a mountain chair. At night, we stopped at whatever little town we had come to. It was slow, weary travel, but the beauty of Yunnan Mountains far repaid the weariness. And the opportunity to present the gospel at night in the little stopping places was worth the time consumed. I much preferred it to the dangerous ride on the Burma Road, trucks of later years, where you finished a week's travel in two days and lost all those little town contacts. It was during our third stage out from Kuming that I contracted dysentery, the same kind mentioned in Acts 28.8, and was dangerously ill. We had to stop off at Tusiting. An American missionary lived there in a beautiful big compound, and she had a little Christian Chinese nurse, Miss Ling, staying with her. For three weeks, Miss Ling nursed me. She had nursed many such cases in Shanghai, but she had never seen one as bad as mine. Yet the Lord brought me through. We arrived in Tali, June 28, 1930, and John had wanted me to walk with him from Sia Khan. Our coolies had stopped there for the night, although it was still early afternoon. The Chinese had told us that Tali was just Sasili, three or four Chinese miles further on. In fact, they meant San Shali, but pronounced it differently. We thought three or four La, which is Chinese miles, were meant, but actually it was 30 miles. The road was level all the way, and very beautiful scenery absorbed our attention. To the left rose the high range of mountains which contained the Azul Peak, 15,000 feet altitude. To the right, emerald green rice fields sloped away to the large blue lake. Tali is the marble quarry of China, 
and the villages throughout which we passed were all built on stone, quaint, picturesque dwellings. Every now and then we crossed a rushing crystal mountain stream of melted snow. I was still weak from sickness, and it was the end of the day to boot, so I, I soon felt tired. But John urged me on, eager to see our new station. I went as long as I could, but when I said, John, I can't go any further, I meant just that. Oh, you're doing fine, dear. Just a few more steps. See, here's the gate, he reassured me. But I could not make those steps. He half carried me in and laid me on the floor. The only place available for the house was empty. Belle, you're awful, he said, standing over me, perplexed. When you say you're through, you just stop. You don't make any further effort. But dear, I argued weakly, I don't say I'm through until I am. Help was on its way. The Chinese pastor lived in the front of part of the extensive compound, which was the CIM home in Tali. He soon came to see us and inquired if we had made arrangements for supper. After a long rest and some warm food, I was able to sit up and even walk a little. John had already been all over the place. Such a domain after our two small windowless rooms in Changqing. I still remember the thrill of the first evening when he led me through the rooms of the Cloister of Tali, as they were later named. Three wings of rooms, upper and lower, were absolutely ours. A lawn and a huge garden were at the back, not to speak of the small court between the wings, which was planted with flowering trees. It was luxury and paradise to us. Gentle, refined young Pastor Lay was always so concerned for our comfort. We just loved him from the first contact on. We would preach and minister at Tali for two and a half years, and there our first child would be born. Chapter 7 John Becomes a Daddy John was 23 years old when we were married, and he was not much interested in babies. He wanted to be able to take me around with him when he traveled. But at the end of our first year, I knew God was going to give us a child. I broke the news with a bit of anxiety. Would John be vexed? I would have many surprises yet to come from this same daddy. He was delighted. A radiant light beamed on his face. Great news, he cried out. I hope it's a boy. And then when Chinese asked me, Pastor Kuhn, have you any children? And here he repeated the typical Chinese phrase, I'll be able to answer, yes, one small schoolboy. I did not want John to get his heart set on a boy. What if it turned out to be a girl? Yes, but what if you have to answer, it's a small cook rise to eat one? Oh, that will be all right, too, answered the thrill and happy daddy in prospect. But where is the baby to be born? The nearest hospital is Kuming. Are you going to go all that way back? It will be only a year since we left there, and I don't like to go trotting back to the capital so soon. It would take a big scoop out of our time. That's what I think, too, I replied. I've been thinking, Miss Ling, she nursed me through dysentery, remember, and I happen to know that she's a midwife of lots of experience, trained by Dr. Mary Stone of Bethel Mission in Shanghai. She'd be capable, I'm sure. The very one. And so it was arranged. John, who had now become skilled in Chinese writing, carried on the correspondence with Miss Ling. John and I had no idea we were doing anything hazardous, that a woman expecting her first baby needs more medical checkups than others had never occurred to us. Mails were overland and slow, and there was no airmail to those parts. So it was a long, long time before we learned how anxious some of the older women in the mission were that I had not seen a doctor, did not plan to see one, and was trusting everything to a Chinese nurse. By that time, it was too late to get me out to the hospital. So they did what remained to do. They prayed hard for us, and I came through wonderfully. It was March 1931 when Miss Ling arrived. 
Already we had junior workers. Ernest Mansfield and Will Allen had been studying Chinese under John's tutoring for some months by that time. They were two young bachelors full of devotion to the Lord, but also blessed with a sense of humor, which helped us fit into one another. Ernest was Australian, Will English, but born in China and educated at our CIM school in, in Shangfu. Miss Ling was a slight, young, small woman with a business-like manner. She had a book on obstetrics with her and showed me the gruesome pictures in it of unnatural presentations and the instrument cases. I wish she had not. They haunted me. Now I knew what was possible, and I shuddered. But she was very casual. Oh, don't worry. I've delivered each of these special cases, and all by myself, too. It is experience that counts. Now you will probably have long labor at your aged 29. Walk. Get out and exercise those muscles. Limber them up. Sensitive to grinning Chinese with knowing looks, I hunted for a place to walk. There I went every day, walked back and forth, praying and studying Chinese for several hours at a time. Much did I pray for the little boy student or a girl cook who was coming to us. I had been reading a book in which the author said, But Elspeth was God's child always. Sentimental Tommy by James Beery. I like that. So I asked it for our firstborn. May he or she be God's child always. When the time came, Miss Ling had everything prepared in our own big, airy bedroom on the second floor. She was very efficient, but as the first pains made me catch my breath and wince, she said, Oh, that's nothing. They'll get much worse than that. It was my dear husband who was a pillar of strength at that trying hour. I will always bless him for his faithfulness, tenderness, and strength when I had to go down into the valley for our babies. He stayed with me all the time, holding my hand on one side while Miss Ling, our Chinese Bible woman, held the other. John's grip was like the rock of Gibraltar, but Miss Ling's grasp, swaying on her tiny bound feet as she did, was like hanging onto a paper scarf. She prayed incessantly for me in Chinese, Oh God, help! But it was the silent solidness of my husband's grip that seemed to pull me through. It was at 11.40 p.m., April the 10th, 1931. A thin wail pierced that lamp-lit room, and Catherine Ann Kuhn had made her appearance in this old world. As soon as the baby was taken away by the nurse to be bathed, John knelt, taking my hand, and thanked our dear Lord for the merciful delivery and for our little daughter. And Lord, he prayed, we give her back to you. We lay no claim to her. We want her to be yours and to serve you all her life. It was not long before Nurse Ling returned with a small red-faced bundle. Babies are notoriously ugly their first 24 hours, and they usually resemble a small boy lobsters or little wrinkled old men. Kathy was no exception. As I looked at that little wrinkled face, I wondered, Will John like her? He is such a lover of beauty. I was to spend hours chuckling at his surprising reaction. John knelt down on his knees to get closer and cried earnestly. What do you think, Belle? Who is she like? Out of compassion for him, I was going to suggest that she looked like me when Nurse Ling interrupted. She looks like a mushi. Don't you see that she has those scooped-out, deep-set eyes? You should have seen the radiant smile that swept over his face. He fairly beamed at Miss Ling. Do you hear, Belle? Miss Ling says she looks like me. I think she does, too. You know, he continued confidently, they say that a child always takes after the stronger character of the two. I was awakened by the next morning by a call from baby's alcove. It was John's voice. The window in the alcove opened close to Ernest Manfield's, and John had been waiting to see if Ernest was awake. 
As soon as he discerned movement, he crawled out. Ernest! From my bed, I could see Ernest's face come to the window, and then John held up in his arms with something cradled in them. It's born, he said in ecstasy. It's a girl. I'll bring her over for you to see. Oh, don't bother. She might catch cold, Ernest called back. I'll come over to your place. I'll call Will, too. I smiled at my husband's boyishness. No new toy had ever caught this boyhood fancy and swung him off his feet like a little girly. I could see her face was still red and wrinkled, and I wondered how the two bachelors were going to salve their consciences and yet please the senior missionary. Ernest, always kind and sympathetic, had done some successful thinking on his way up the stairs. Oh, isn't she a dear, he explained enthusiastically. Daddy beamed. Enthusiasm was all he needed. The reasons for it were not important. Then John turned expectantly to Will. They say she looks like me, he suggested hopefully. Will's transparent honesty was knocked off balance. He gave a quick laugh. Oh, come now, John, you really... But sympathetic Ernest had been bending over the baby. He straightened and said, Yes, I think she does, John. The shape of her head is yours, round with a square jaw. Isabel's head is long and thin, and the jaw almost pointed. Yes, that jaw declares her a coon. You really think so, do you, murmured Daddy complacently. He was sublimely happy, and the bachelor visit had been a great success. Kathy's redness faded soon, and of course the wrinkles smoothed out. The little cheeks became apple blossom velvet. From the first, she had a beautiful black curly eyelashes, and when the time came, she began to laugh. Her hazel eyes sparkled like topaz. Charm is a thing difficult to describe, but Mommy somehow thought she was going to have that when she grew up. It was not Asian custom to show a baby to visitors during the first month. In fact, among the Chinese peasants of those parts, and among the Lesu too, even the mother was not available to friends for the first four weeks. But Daddy burst all such bounds. Our wonderful baby was the first topic of conversation, and sleeping or not must be produced for every visitor. One morning, while we were discussing a Chinese name for our baby, someone was playing the gramophone. The song was, Grace That Is Greater Than All Our Sins. As the chorus floated up to us, grace, grace, God's grace, both of us almost simultaneously exclaimed, there it is, let's call her Hong Hing, vast grace, in memory of God's goodness to us. She was dedicated to God in the chapel of Tali at the end of 30 days. It happened that the country pastor, Mr. Lee, had a baby girl named Ho Hing, great grace, also one month old. So the Chinese and American babies were dedicated at the same time. We parents also standing up together. Of course, we gave a feast to the Chinese to celebrate our little girl's one-month birthday. Twelve years passed before Daddy had a repetition of the joy of fatherhood. We had hoped to have a second child who would be a playmate for Kathy, but due to overexertion during the time of stormy flood and fright, I lost that hope. It was with a very different scare that Danny appeared. We were there in the wild canyon of Upper Salween, and the Japanese war was in full spat. In fact, the Japanese were just across the river from us. To go out to the hospital would mean not returning until the war was over. One had to get a military pass from the Chinese government to come into the mountain area where we lived. They would never give such permission to a woman and her baby. If I went out, I must stay out. But I had just been definitely led into the canyon. Then God worked. Miss Dorothy Burroughs, one of our English nurses at the Tali Hospital, was due a vacation. She loved the tribe's work and volunteered to come, taking that in lieu of her vacation. A Chinese guerrilla colonel had offered to get her a military pass and escort her in. 
Truly, it seemed of the Lord. Once again, I did not see a doctor, but was efficiently cared for by an experienced nurse. But this confinement was not ordinary. I was nearly 42 years old, and conditions arose which took expert skill. The baby chose to appear on Sunday, August the 1st, 1943, just as Alesu were leaving church. We were living in Mali Ping, Oak Flat Village, and many from surrounding villages came there for the noonday service. We had been hoping for a son, so Nurse Burroughs was jubilant as she brought the little bundle to me, saying, It's Daniel, all right? Now I can answer the Chinese one of each when they ask if I have children, Daddy exclaimed. That was the first inkling that he had felt the stigma of not having a son. For twelve years he had been politely asked about his children and had been forced to answer only one, a daughter. To see Big Daddy walking around with a little golden head resting on the crock of his arm was a thrill I never forgot. He wanted to take his son everywhere, to watch the volleyball game at Playgower, to go for a walk around the mountainside, and when they came back there was a wildflower set into that tiny fist for Mommy. His name had been chosen for the love of the young Jewish prophet, who purposed in his heart not to defile himself. For the Chinese in Lesu to pronounce Danny was simple. Their Bibles transliterated Da Nali. Chapter 8. Raindrops It was in Tali that I learned to count raindrops. The first anniversary of our wedding had seen us welcome our first junior workers, Ernest Mansfield and William Allen. From then on, we were alone almost never again. It was a great preparation for them. John and I occupied the large room in the central wing, but the eastern wing of the house looked out on a wonderful old mountain peaks. They spoke of the steadfastness as well as of the power of our God. There were three little upper bedrooms, so Ernest and Will each had one, with the middle room making a nice sitting room for them. There were busy days, and we all came together at meals, eager for a little social break from language study and new convert classes. It was during one of those meal times that my husband chose to correct me publicly. I was the beginning of some adventure we had shared together and was sketching out the background before my real story began. It was pouring rain with my background when John stopped me. I don't remember that it was pouring with rain, he announced firmly. I'm afraid you exaggerated times, Belle, and I remember the occasion it was merely raining. Well, I replied, indignant at having my perfectly good story spotlighted on mere minor detail. I didn't stop to count the raindrops. I, but that's just what you should do, said the incorrigible husband. Turning to Will and Ernest, he continued, I'm afraid Isabel exaggerates sometimes, and I want to help her to get out of this habit. Now, I was careful as to truth. But as artists do when painting a picture, I highlighted it sometimes to give the correct impression. I did not even know I had the habit, and it had bothered John for some time. Will and Ernest enjoyed seeing John bait his wife and aided him with delight. Three to one, I did not stand a chance. That was the beginning of a very drastic, grueling course in the art of factual storytelling. At first, it was only John who had suddenly stopped me as I began to relate an experience with a soon-hated question. Did you count the raindrops? After a while, the others took it up. If I told a dinnertime story that happened to cap someone else's, Will or Ernest would grin and say, Isabel didn't stop to count the raindrops that time. It never failed to produce laughter and a united male front. Finally, I became so sensitive and hurt about what I thought was an attack on my truthfulness that I decided to stop taking part in mealtime conversations altogether. Maybe they did not notice it, but I dropped out of the storytelling rounds. I was hurt, and I felt they had been unnecessarily cruel. But as I have looked back on it from the softening influence of the years, I have thanked God for this experience. 
I had been a literature major in variety. In fiction, it was true that you, to obtain the effect of real situation, one has to highlight certain aspects. But God was preparing to use my pen to relate stories of his work in human hearts. He could not afford me to let my pen grow careless with the facts. I needed a stern lesson to make me afraid of inaccuracy, and I got it. It was very unpalatable, but it was very much needed. My husband was young and zealous to rule well his own house, 1 Timothy 3.4. He had always censored my writings, checking for inaccuracy in detail, especially in our circular letters. In those early years, circular letter writing was a grueling time for me. Every word I wrote was challenged. One result was that our circular letters of those days did not bless people. They were rarely quoted in the mission magazine, and the work did not come alive for our prayer helpers. Imagination must not play with facts. We all agree to that. But it has its place in interpreting heart attitudes of people. If imagination recreates the scene, keeping true to the general jest of the conversation, immediately the characters leap into life. But my critic would rise the red pen and say, Is this word for word what each person said? Count your raindrops. My dear husband, the poor writer would say with a sigh, I do not know shorthand, and I did not take it down verbatim. None of us knew that the conversation was going to be a turning point. But you yourself know that this was, in general, how the conversation went. All right, my husband would respond. You say so. Say that this is your interpretation of the conversation. But that is perfectly ridiculous, I would wail. Every reader knows that a conversation cannot be remembered word for word. What I've written down was the decision made at that meeting, now wasn't it? And if the questions and answers were faithful in character, it does not need to be verbatim. If I stop my story to explain, it will highlight interest on me, distract the reader, and interfere with the flow of sympathy towards the main character. But down would come the red pen, and imagination was slain. So we continued for several years. I want you to note this, because similar situations are not uncommon among all young couples. If we will just be patient with one another, God will work for us. Gradually, the knowledge that everyone does not see the same scene with the same eyes grew on my husband. Just because I noticed a beautiful sunset on the occasion when he hadn't, perhaps he because he was preoccupied with the discussion with someone and didn't mean that there had been no sunset. Also, the Lord began to show him that his wife had a gift for making a situation live to others. Frequently at the dinner table, he would call on me to relate a family anecdote because people saw the point more vividly when I described it. In other words, he began to sense a difference in our gifts. He was learning to give me the freedom of personality. Eventually, the red pencil became more cautious in when it struck out. Friends at home began to write of the blessing they had received from the circulars. Some even asked that the circulars be printed. On the other hand, I had become more careful about accuracy in what I termed the unimportant matters. To me, the important thing was the general truth of the story. If I could sketch the main figures vividly and truthfully, I was content. I did not always remember accurately the little details of the background. Before my marriage, this had been no importance to me, but the immovable object had shown me that a Christian writer cannot be too particular that every point be according to reality. The result had been a mutual recognition of each other's gifts. Now I am always anxious that John check what I have written, for I still make mistakes in the unimportant things. Until the Lord is able to work out in us a perfect adjustment to one another, we must bear with one another in love. I feel many modern marriages are wrecked on just such a sharp shoal. A human weakness is discerned. 
It is pointed out, but the correction is resented or erringly dismissed as unimportant. That grates. The second time of default, the rebuke is sharper. Perhaps it contains a sting. This is resented and the argument grows bitter. With novels and movies which teach us false ideals of marriage, young people are not prepared to bear and forbear. They are not taught to forgive. They are not taught to endure. Divorce is too quickly seized upon as the only way out. It is the worst way out. To pray to God to awaken the other person to where he or she is hurting us. To endure patiently until God does it. This is God's way out. And it molds the two opposite natures into one invincible whole. The passion for accuracy plus a sympathetic imagination which relives another's joys and sorrows. This is double effectiveness. Either quality working unrestrained by itself would never have been so effective, but it costs mutual forgiveness and endurance to weld those two opposites into one. Let's be willing for the cost. Next time we will be reading Chapter 9, Unwanted Assignments. And I just want to stop just for a few seconds to say how precious this last chapter has been with all of them, but it has been very... Um, just to be able to remember and that mutual forgiveness and endurance for two couples coming together. My husband has always said uh, marriage is two sinners living in the same household together. But with God in between them, they can work out those differences and, and they can look to the Lord to help them to do that. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.